This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. It is really nice to be here this evening. And those of you who know me from the concentration retreats surely by now know that the concentration practice is near and dear to my heart. Tonight I'd like to speak to you about another practice that's likewise near and dear to my heart, and that is the Satipatthana. Satipatthana is the main teaching, the primary teaching given by the Buddha on mindfulness. And the Satipatthana teaching sits right at the core of the Buddha's teachings. It's that valuable And so it's really worth a closer look. So tonight I'm not going to go into any detail about the instructions, but rather I'd like to talk about what I think of as ten very cool things about Satipatthana. I started to list that as my title, the title of my talk tonight, and I thought, oh, Shaila has higher standards. Maybe I'll just say 10 very remarkable things about Satipatthana practice. So I really just want to highlight what I consider to be some really remarkable features about the practice. And in doing so, my hope is that for those of you who are either new to the Satipatthana practice or have or are not yet familiar with it, to maybe plant some seeds of interest and encouragement in, in exploring the practice, perhaps taking it up. And for those of you who are already established in Satipatthana meditation, my hope is to open your eyes a bit wider to the full potential of Satipatthana meditation and maybe re-arouse some interest in and dedication to the practice. So we'll have some time at the end, I think, to open to questions and discussion, perhaps an, an opportunity for you to share about your experience with the practice or to ask questions if you have questions. But first, before going any further, I think it would be good to define what what does Satipatthana mean? What what is meant by that term? Satipatthana is the Pali term, the Pali word. Pali being the language of the um, the discourses. It's the um, term that's translated best as mindfulness. Satipatthana nowadays is usually associated with four foundations of mindfulness, or sometimes translated as the four establishments of mindfulness. So if you were to Google the term, the Pali term, Satipatthana, it would probably turn up um, four establishments, something about mindfulness, four, four foundations of mindfulness. And that's actually the translation for the title of the main discourses that are found in a couple places in the Pali canon. The, uh, those terms, the four foundations, the, the four establishments, those are fine translations, and they have been passed down through commentarial tradition. 
But if we leave it with just that translation, four foundations, the four establishments of mindfulness, we might miss the richer tapestry of the practice. We might miss the fuller meaning of satipatthana. So, for that reason, I'd like to take just a very brief look at the etymology of the word, because that actually gives us a better glimpse of the fuller meaning, the fuller range of uh, meaning of satipatthana. It actually comes from a compound of sati, meaning mindfulness, and upatana, which is translated as placing near. So what emerges then is an understanding of mindfulness, presence, awareness, placing with attention to something, or presence of, awareness of, with mindfulness, and in this case, attention to the four domains, the four foundations, the four establishments, which we could say encompasses all of experience. So with this understanding, I'd like to turn now to the topic of my talk this evening, 10 very remarkable things to know about Satipatthana. And I'll start with number 10 and work my way to number 1. Number 10 is that we actually have instructions, we're given instructions for how to set up this practice, how to establish the practice. You know, so often we come across um, a meditation practice, we hear about a meditation practice that's supposed to be really good, but we're kind of left without many clues about how to actually approach the practice. So in this discourse, we're given instructions for how to set it up. We need to adjust a little bit for the difference of like 2,600 years of time having passed. But the instructions start out with some words about suitable environments for setting up the practice. The examples given are a forest, the root of a tree, an empty hut. So, you know, retreat centers are not that much of a stretch. But if we were really to think about it in contemporary terms, the instructions would probably include retreat centers, meeting spaces like this, our homes, perhaps a quiet space at work, at the office. And then suitable postures are described. One sits down. One, uh, well, there is something in there about crossing one's legs, and I don't think it means like this. I think it might mean more like that. And sets one's body erect. And probably today, the instructions would include chairs, benches, and maybe no mention of, of having crossed one's legs, but, but certainly setting one's body erect. And then the next, uh, the next phrase in the instructions for setting up is one establishes mindfulness 
Well, yeah, that's the point. But really, when you think about it just briefly, you know, it begs the question, what does that mean? How do we go about establishing mindfulness? So in this particular discourse, mindfulness is actually defined. And that is my num- on my list number 10, that we have a definition of mindfulness, of how to establish mindfulness. And in this discourse, in this context, mindfulness is characterized by four qualities. It's, uh, mindfulness is established with continuity, with a quality of uh, diligence or ardency combined with a clear knowing or a clear comprehension and free from desires and discontent with the world. So really what that's saying to us is, well, continuity build up some continuity of mindfulness, as Shilas uh, pointed out in the instructions, when the mind wanders, and that's sure to happen. When the mind wanders, we just bring it back to our object of meditation. And that might be the breath, it could be something else. And then with some right effort, that's the ardency and the diligence to, to have a balanced effort, not, not too slack, yet not striving and forceful and imposing. And the, the clear comprehension and clear knowing, just bringing that quality of clarity of what it is that we are mindful of. That's wisdom. That's the wisdom component. Right there at the outset, we have that uh, direction to bring some wisdom, to start cultivating We don't already have to come with wisdom. This is saying, no, set it up in this way. This is how we start cultivating wisdom. We don't need to figure out how. Just do what this is suggesting. And that fourth quality of being free from desire and discontent. You know, when I first read that, I was thinking, oh, well, I'm cooked. Because, like, how can I start the practice if I'm not free from desire and discontent, if I was free from desire and discontent, I'm not sure that I would have the same interest in the practice. So at first, it was a little off-putting for me because I hadn't really understood that this simply can mean, well, we just have some balance. We're not too much tugged by aversion and desire. Not, not so much going back and forth, but we find just maybe in this breath and then maybe in that breath, one breath at a time, a breath here and there where we can just settle. As Shaila said, just want to be present. I think that moment, that one in-breath, that one out-breath, one breath at a time, and then the next breath and perhaps another breath at some point of just wanting to be here. I think that fits this quality of free from desire and discontent in the world. It doesn't say forever, completely done, totally. I think it might mean just just for a moment, just here, just there. It's our aim. It's, it's the direction that we aim for. It might not happen right now, but 
but maybe in the next moment it can happen. So in setting up for mindfulness, this definition of mindfulness, if we can just remember even one of those qualities, continuity is, is an easy one to remember. If we can remember two or three or all four, great. Number eight on my list of of ten very remarkable things is closely associated. There's the definition, and then there's um, in the sutta what can be referred to as the refrains. So each of the contemplations is followed by a refrain. It's a, it's what can drive some people nuts because we read an instruction and it's like we're reading on and we go oh. I've heard this before. <laughs> and hence the the term it's dubbed the refrain. But when we really st- when we can move past our annoyance like okay you've said that before and you're going to say it again really then we begin to appreciate what these refrains are pointing to. And if we can rest back with these refrains and look at it we find something really remarkable here. And that is that the refrains after each of the contemplations tell us what's really important to know about that particular contemplation. So these refrains point out, for instance, how the practice, how the object, how the subject of the meditation in that particular contemplation should be perceived or what's important to notice about it. For instance, the, the instructions might say, well, if it's, if it's, for instance, something about the breath or one of the contemplations having to do with the body, for instance, the refrain might give us the additional instructions to contemplate internally or to contemplate externally or both internally and externally, or in some of the refrains, it's pointed out that what's important is to contemplate the arising, or to contemplate the passing away, or the arising and the passing away. So we're given options. We're not left guessing, well, what do we do with this? We're actually given some some options, it could be even simply the instruction and the refrain to contemplate the impermanence of something. And we don't have to figure out too much because if we just follow the refrain for each of the contemplations, then it tells us how to be perceiving, how to be contemplating how to be observing the characteristics associated with each of these contemplations. And here's the really cool thing. Each of these contemplations is associated with a particular task. And if we follow the instructions in the, re- in the refrains, then we know how to go about fulfilling the task. So we don't have to figure it out we're already given these clues. And I've come to think of these refrains, the more I practice, the more relaxed I become with the refrains. And I've come to think of these refrains as functioning rather like hint books. I've, I've seen 
our, um, in the past, I've seen our teenage daughters uh, go go online, or it's, it's really on their phones, for hint books for for games. And just as these hint books guide game players video um, game players through the video games, these refrains function in much the same way to guide us through each of the contemplations. They give us hints and guidelines, whereas the game hint books would say, "Oh, look over here, lift up that basket, and you'll find." Well. If the the refrains function in somewhat the same way. Oh, contemplate the arising and passing away, or contemplate the impermanence of that. So number that takes us to number seven, working our way down the list. And number seven is that the Satipatthana practice develops both insight and tranquility in a very balanced way. If we simply do the practice, then over time we find that both tranquility and insight develop balanced and rather intertwined. We don't have to give particular practice to one or the other or feel like we need to shift between practices. And as the practice develops over time, concentration is a natural outcome. We don't have to give particular attention to developing concentration. If we just do the practice, concentration naturally develops because the practice is engaging, the practice itself is engaging in a way that concentration naturally develops. And over time, it strengthens surprisingly to a degree that is strong enough for penetrative insight. That's that's really remarkable. Concentration strong enough for penetrative insight. That said, it is possible that if you are engaging with the concentration practice, that the concentration practice can be brought right into and kind of coupled with satipatthana practice. There's a point in the practice. It's not a part of the traditional satipatthana practice, but if you are working with samadhi practice and you really don't want to set that aside, it's it's not necessary to set it aside would be a, a better way to say it. There is a point in the Satipatthana practice where we can incorporate um, the Samadhi practice, we could incorporate Metta practice, and then we bring it right back into the fold of insight meditation. And it's seamless. Either way, whether we stay just with the Satipatthana practice and let that stand alone for both tranquility and insight practice, or if we bring another practice in side-by-side with the Satipatthana practice, either way, it's a seamless practice. That's one of the things that I really appreciate about um, the Satipatthana meditation. So number six on the list of really remarkable things to know is um, uh, here we come to the first of the four contemplations. 
So the contemplation of body is, is the first of the Satipatthanas. This contemplation of body reveals the true nature of body, bringing a direct understanding of a suba, anicca, anatta, and therefore dukkha. And I'll say a little bit more about those terms in just a moment. But first I'd like to say that this first set of Satipatthana contemplations establishes mindfulness of the body, kayakatasati is the Pali term. And once this mindfulness of the body is established, which happens rather naturally in the unfolding of the practice, because this is the first of the four contemplations. So once mindfulness of the body is established, then kayakatasati, the mindfulness of the body, becomes our resting place. It becomes our refuge. It becomes our friend. It really becomes the place where we can rest back to cool the mind, to nourish the body before then we embark on the next of the contemplations. It's always a place where we can circle back. We don't have to take these four foundations, the four contemplations, sequentially. We can always circle back to kayakatasati and rest back in that mindfulness of the body. It's a wonderful way to just settle. And there are some times when, oh, we might have a meeting just outside the shared courtyard when, you know, there's so much going on that we just want to settle. Kayakatasati is is a fine practice for doing that because we only need just to settle into the body. And that's a great starting place. So each of the contemplations in the contemplation of body in that first foundation bring forth a different aspect of understanding the true nature of the body. And we come to know directly for ourselves, not intellectually by reading or saying, yeah, yeah, I've got that, I understand that. But we can see for ourselves the true nature of of the body by way of the four characteristics. It is inherently not beautiful. Just lose your toothbrush for a couple days and that starts to become evident. Just don't take a shower and that truth starts to show through. We don't need any anybody to give a talk on it. It just becomes evident. It's not inherently beautiful. It's not permanent. You know, we age. It's prone to sickness. It's, it's prone to accidents. It's not anything that we can control or like it's ungovernable. We say in the Vipassana circles, the expression is, it's, it's not I, it's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. And for these reasons, it's dukkha. It's unsatisfactory. It's unreliable as a lasting source of happiness. So in Pali, these terms, asuba, anicca, anatta, dukkha, this is how suffering begins to diminish or diminishes entirely 
It's eradicated entirely by coming to know experience, all of experience, not just the body, not just embodied experience, but all of experience by way of these characteristics. Not inherently beautiful, not permanent, not me, mine, not myself, and not reliable as the lasting source of happiness. This takes us to number five on our list. The contemplation of feelings reveals the bridge between bodily experience and mental experience. So this is really remarkable in that if we can point to just one place where we can really get a glimpse, in fact, sometimes not just a glimpse, but profound insight into what. where's that link, where's that connection between our bodily, our embodied experience and our mental experience, between body or sensations and mind and thoughts. So this contemplation of feelings, we use the term feelings. In Pali, the term is Vedana. But here, when we use the term feelings as a translation for Vedana, it's not what we often associate in our culture with emotions. Rather, here, Vedana, feeling, refers to the bare affective tone of experience. And we, we talk about it in three simple ways. We can think of our, the bare affective tone as being pleasant or painful or neither pleasant nor painful, we often just call it neutral feelings. And when we start watching our experience, we understand that this is important because if we veer off in pleasant experience and get caught up in it, it can arouse desire, and we get caught in that desire, which can become insatiable. And if we get distracted in unpleasant experience, it turns into aversion, not wanting. And if we dull out in neutral experience, it can lead to delusion, to just a fogginess, a lack of clarity about experience. So what happens in the body and what happens in the mind are intimately connected, and the spot to look for that is in the feeling tone, the bare affective tone, feeling uh, tone of experience. And that's the second contemplation of feelings. The third contemplation, which brings us to number four on the list of very remarkable things, is a contemplation of mind. And the reason this contemplation is so important is because it has everything to do with the cultivation of wisdom. The contemplation of mind is associated with learning how to discern wholesome and unwholesome so that we begin to turn away from the unwholesome, knowing what's unwholesome. We just we don't want to go there. We naturally just turn away from it. And then 
as we learn what's wholesome, we begin to cultivate the wholesome. And this is the contemplation of mind. Simply put, learning to discern wholesome and unwholesome, cultivating wisdom. So that gradually as we develop wisdom, we no longer have interest in in grasping the unreliable sources of happiness. Rather, we cultivate the wisdom. The mind is purified. The mind becomes bright, steady, trustworthy. And we learn to rest and find happiness in the trustworthiness of the purified mind. No longer needing to reach out to, and seek happiness in those unreliable sources. So the fourth contemplation takes me to number three on the list, on the countdown of ten very remarkable things. The, the fourth contemplation is contemplation of what we call dhammas, easily translated as experience. And by that I mean all of experience. Phenomena, sometimes dhammas is, is translated as contemplation of, of, of phenomena. But there are two particular aspects in this particular teaching that rise to the surface as being particularly important. And that is the contemplation of dhammas really explores the hindrances and the flip side of the hindrances which are the awakening factors. And these develop in tandem. These, these two contemplations, these two aspects of, of um, the practice develop in tandem. And as, as the uh, hindrances begin to thin, because we, this is the place for us to learn how to work for the hindrances. We don't have to just bat them away, struggle with them, grit our teeth, sweat bullets, and, and hang in there, white knuckle it, working with the hindrances. This practice actually wears away the hindrances. It actually thins the hindrances. And as the hindrances are thinned, worn away, diminished, they lose their stickiness. They just don't have a grip on us in the same way. Then what's happening on the other side of that is simultaneously, quite naturally, spontaneously, the awakening factors are beginning to come forth. We might not recognize that. That's why it's important to pay attention to this contemplation of the awakening factors. Because because sometimes joy starts to arise in this practice. And it might just be moments of relief, and we might miss that actually those are moments of quiet joy of the most wholesome type. And that type of joy that develops as wisdom starts to shine through, as the hindrances diminish, as we start to see experience, whether it's the body, the mind, feelings, all of experience, with bits of wisdom just here and there, and that little bit of joy shines through, that's the wholesome kind of joy. And that's actually the seed of the awakening factor of joy. That's the kind of joy to be cultivated. And I mention this 
because sometimes we overlook it. It's like, oh, well, thank goodness I wasn't, I wasn't assailed by hindrances so much tonight. But we miss those moments when the awakening factors start to shine through. So the important reason for giving attention to both the hindrances and the awakening factors is that the hindrances do that, do just that. They hinder, they obstruct our path to awakening. And simultaneously, as the awakening factors develop, they cultivate the path to awakening. They are essential for awakening. And we don't have to sit down with a checklist and go, okay, this week I'm going to work on number four. Let's see, what was that awakening factor number? No, they just develop quite spontaneously. And if we just do the practice, it rather takes care of itself. So that brings me to number two on the list, which is the practice itself leads us to insight strong enough to penetrate the Four Noble Truths. Now we're getting to the very core of the Buddha's teaching, the Four Noble Truths. And the four, awakening happens through penetration of the Four Noble Truths. It's essential. This practice takes us straight to the potential for penetration of the Four Noble Truths. Here we're starting to talk about the potential for awakening. And any practice that can lead us in that direction is really worth paying attention to. So, penetration of the Four Noble Truths happens because we cultivate the path leading to understanding, penetration of the Four Noble Truths. That path becomes important. And with that, on that note, in that regard, number one in my list is about that path. And that is that the Satipatthana practice is said to be the direct path. You don't hear that very often. In fact, you don't often hear, well, this is the path to awakening. This is the path to freedom from suffering. Here we hear not only this is the path, but we hear this is the direct path. And that just begs the question, so what is this direct term mean? Well, there's a lovely simile that I think says it all. It just brings understanding to life. So instead of trying to explain it, I'm just going to share this brief simile of direct path. Here is the simile from the discourses. Suppose there were a pond with clean, agreeable, cool water, transparent, with smooth banks, delightful, near a dense wood. And then a man scorched and exhausted by hot weather, weary, 
parched and thirsty, came by a path going in one way only towards that pond, a person with good eyesight seeing this would say, that man will arrive at the pond. So do the practice. It'll take you there. That one way, that direct means if you do the, the practice as it's, it's given in the discourses, we're headed in the right direction. We don't need to figure out how to, to find our direction. It's given for us. Just do the practice. Put in contemporary terms, Bhikkhu Inalio, a scholar and monk who's an authority on Satipatthana, sums it up this way. He says, I understand Satipatthana to be the direct path for purifying the mind and thus proceeding towards liberation. Here, mindfulness directly feeds into the development of insight as it directly faces one's present moment experience, uncovering its various features, directly facing one's own condition right now is what informs progress along this path. Summing up, in my view, Analio says, a central aspect of Satipatthana meditation is facing things directly with awareness. I'll repeat that. In my view, this is Analio's words, in my view, a central aspect of Satipatthana meditation is facing things directly with awareness. So this direct path comes with a very cool prediction. It seemed a bit arcane when I first heard it, but I've befriended it over the years, so I'm including it here. This prediction is for how long this path might take. You know, you start on this path and you think, yeah, how how long is this going to take? What am I signing up for here? Like how many lifetimes? That's how I heard How many lifetimes are we talking about? Because I have no idea where I might be on this timeline. And like, I could die tomorrow. So what are we talking about here? Well, in the discourse, uh, you know, understand this, this is language that's 2,600 years old, but try to hear it through, through contemporary ears. It says, if anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven years. I mean, we're not talking seven lifetimes. It says seven years. Oh, oh, but it gets better because then it says six years. No, five years. No, four. No, three, two, one year. Oh, no, no. It gets better than that. Seven months, six months, three months, four months, two months. No, half a month. Uh, No, we're doing better than that. Seven days. Like, that's the best bid. Seven days, I'm thinking. Seven days? That's like... Uh, two days to settle in a retreat, seven days to awaken, and then one day to 
what, like reintegrate? I mean, seven days, oh my gosh, that's like, how remarkable is that? So I, I don't know about the seven days for sure. I can't speak from any personal experience with that. But what I would say is that that's really inspiring. I don't think it's misleading. I think it's, I think it's really inspiring. So with that, I conclude with this, the closing statement from the Satipatthana Sutta. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four Satipatthanas. Very remarkable. So I hope that if you have not uh, explored the Satipatthana practice, that you might have some interest in just just dipping into it, exploring it just a little bit. Even better, taking it up. Give it a try. It's very accessible. And if you are established, take a fresh look at it. The, the potential is so um, profound. So that's what I have to say about Satipatthana meditation. As you can tell, I'm, um, I'm quite enthusiastic about it. I, it's, it's, it's really near and dear to me. It's a profound awakening practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.